Hello, Darksiders. I hope you're all well. Just a heads up about today's episode. It deals with crimes against children. It is definitely only suitable for a mature audience. No little ears, please. Listener, discretion is advised. So with that said, let's get on with the show. Today's story starts out in Richwoods, Missouri, a rural township so named for the dense forest surrounding it, and is 60 miles or 96 kilometers from St. Louis, the state's second largest city after Kansas City. With a population of 1,500, Richwoods is one of those places where everybody knows everybody, people can leave their doors open, and children play freely outside. Craig and Pam Aker had married in 1997, and Craig had welcomed Pamela's three children into his life and home, Jackie, Jennifer and Sean. He looked on them all as his own, but he had an extra special bond with the youngest, Sean. They were inseparable, and Sean was known as Craig's little shadow. They did everything together. It was Sunday, October 6th, 2002, and the Aker family were having a leisurely day around the house. But by 1pm, 11-year-old Sean was bored. He wanted to ride his bike over to his friend's house. They couldn't say no to Sean. He was a playful, funny character who loved to be with his friends, be outside and be on his bike. His upbeat personality was infectious. So Craig and Pam agreed, but they told him he had to be home before dark. He gave them a cheeky grin and he scampered off. Hours later, darkness fell, but there was no sign of Sean. Getting worried, Pam called the friend's house that he had ridden to, but he had never arrived at their house. Little did Pam and Craig know that when they had waved Sean off a few hours earlier, that a nightmare had just started for them. One that would haunt them for the rest of their lives. This is Darkside, and I am your host, Suze. So where was Sean? Why hadn't he arrived at his friend's house? Let's find out. Breaking news this morning. An 11-year-old boy has disappeared this morning. Sean Hornbeck disappeared when riding a bike in Richwoods, Missouri. Pam and Craig alerted the authorities immediately when Sean didn't come home, and a community-wide search ensued. The whole township seemed to be out, combing the woods, calling out to Sean. But... It seemed that he had just vanished into thin air. Even his bike was missing without a trace. They looked everywhere. The Acres begged the police to put out an Amber Alert. For those of you that are not sure what this is, the Amber Alert instantly galvanises a community to assist in the search for and the safe recovery of an endangered, missing or abducted child. However, the alert requires there to be a witness to the abduction or evidence that a crime has been committed. And, well, this just wasn't the case with Sean. No one had witnessed his disappearance, and there was no evidence that anything nefarious had happened to him, other than he just wasn't there. Even police dogs were brought in, 
they picked up Sean's scent and spirits in the group lifted. But the dogs lost the scent as they approached Highway 8. Sean's friends were questioned at length by the police. Whilst he had not ended up going to see the friend he told his mum he was riding to, he had been seen in the neighbourhood with a group of other boys. Boys he didn't usually hang out with. These boys were also questioned, but not one of them had seen Sean after 4.30pm, half an hour before he was supposed to be home. From 4.30 onwards, it was as though Sean had just vanished off the face of the planet. And so, Sean didn't come home that night, or the next, or the next, or... Ah, oh, well, I think you understand. The Acre family were devastated, and spent every moment for weeks combing every inch of the densely packed woods around the township. They were not going to give up. Pam could still feel him. She knew he was alive. But, as the weeks turned into months, and the search group began thinning it out, the realisation that Sean wasn't going to come home slowly began to seep in. But still, Pam and Craig just couldn't give up. They wouldn't give up. Their guilt was overwhelming at letting him go out that day. They went over and over in their mind all the different things they could have done. But it was a ride that he'd taken dozens of times. How does a boy just vanish? With no evidence to be found, the police eventually stopped searching the local area and the investigation went from missing child to an abduction and possible murder investigation. But still, Pam and Craig were not to be deterred. They cashed in their 401k, which is the American Retirement Fund, and every penny ever saved went into the search for Sean. They set up the Sean Hornbeck Foundation, a non-profit charitable organisation devoted to the search for and the rescue of abducted children. It also ran the Sean Hornbeck Search and Rescue Team to assist in helping in the search for other missing children. The foundation included an email tip line and within days of launching, the Acres had hundreds of tips come in. Working with County Prosecutor Don Cooksey, they investigated 400 leads that came in through the tip line. Don was just as committed to finding Sean as Pam and Craig were. A family man himself, Don couldn't even begin to comprehend or understand the utter torment, guilt and pain the Acres were going through. And he vowed to leave no stone unturned until he found Sean. And he didn't. He searched caves, rivers, strip mines, abandoned properties. He even drained lakes. But there was still no sign of Sean. A year after his disappearance, even the dogmatic Don Cooksey started to admit that he didn't think they were going to find Sean. Despite all the hundreds and hundreds of tips that had come in through the Foundation, not a single tip led to a shred of evidence or information into Sean's disappearance or whereabouts. As one year turned into two, and then three, well, year upon year, it was so hard for Pam and Craig to maintain their hope. But they just couldn't allow themselves to give up. That would be admitting he was dead, 
and they just couldn't bring themselves to admit that. They would keep searching, keep asking questions, and pour every cent they had into finding him. And that is what kept them going, the thought and hope that they would eventually find him. <laughs> what amazing, courageous people. The Acres held a vigil every year on the anniversary of Sean's disappearance in a bid to keep his case in the public mind. But even attendees of the vigil and supporters of the foundation would admit that it felt more like a memorial to a lost son rather than a vigil. Craig eventually ended up leaving his job as a software designer to devote 100% of his time to the foundation. With still no leads coming in, out of sheer desperation, Pam and Craig decided to go on the Montel Williams show and speak with Sylvia Brown. Now, if you are not familiar with either, the show was a syndicated tabloid talk show hosted by Montel Williams, which ran from 1991 to 2008. And Sylvia Brown was one of the world's most recognised, self-declared full-time psychics facilitator of nightmares, false hopes, and sporadic accuracy. Oh, and she was a regular feature of the Montel Williams show. Let's just put it this way. You know someone has to be desperate to seek a psychic reading from her. Now, before anybody raises consternation at my opinion, I would just like to point out that the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry published an article in May 2010 that studied 115 of Brown's predictions related to criminal cases. They found 25 to be completely wrong, and the remaining had no available details or remained unsolved. Now, despite my opinion, and that of the committee, I would never berate anyone for seeking answers about their loved ones. When there are no valid leads or evidence, you cannot help but turn to what is often seen as the last resort of hope. And if I were ever in the Acres position, I might have done the very same thing. But I probably would have gone to someone other than Sylvia. But to Sylvia they went. So what did she have to tell them? Because he was picked up in a blue-coloured sedan by um, a guy by the name of um, Michael... Is somebody who lives in the area, somebody passing through somebody the area? Somebody passing through the area. Was it anybody that Sean knew? No. Was he abducted when you say picked up? Yeah, ab abducted, yeah. He was grabbed? Grabbed. Is yeah. there any better description of the vehicle other than just a blue the sedan? The vehicle is a blue sedan, and I think it's a Chevrolet. Is so, there any kind of a description of the person driving the car? Yeah, the, the guy was dark-skinned. Although he wasn't black, he was more a Hispanic looking had real long dark hair and strange enough hispanic but he had dreadlocks he was um really tall and really almost like what you think a basketball player's build would be can you tell how far from the area he was taken maybe about 20 miles and he's still within a 20 mile radius even he's now he's still within 20 mile radius southwest of where you are it looks like this is wood area, so southwest of you. Is there any landmarks around? Yeah, strangely enough, there are two jagged boulders, which look really misplaced because everything is trees, and then all of a sudden you've got these stupid boulders sitting there. 
and he could be found near He's there. near the boulders. Is he still with us? Do you see the bicycle anywhere? The bicycle is in another state in a dump. So that's it. The last shred of hope is gone. Sean really was dead. But still, they just couldn't give up. Without hope, they had little else to survive on. It is what got them through each and every day. And without it, well, there was no alternative for Pam and Craig. They needed to hold on to it for their very survival. And so they quietly went back to their lives, running the foundation, looking after their daughters, holding yearly vigils, and carrying on as best they could, but never, ever giving up hope, no matter how much time went by. Some four years after Sean's disappearance, the Acre family were going about their daily morning activities, making breakfast, getting ready for the day, when the morning news broadcast caught their attention. 13-year-old Ben Onby disappeared on Monday. Let's go to news Pam stared at the screen in horror. Yes, there had been other cases of missing children in the last four years since Sean disappeared. But this boy, Ben, well, he looked so much like Sean. The same dark hair and light complexion, same slight build, same height. The only difference was the age. Ben was 13 and Sean had been 11. Ben also went missing from Beaufort, Missouri, only 40 minutes away from them. In that instant, all the emotions of that horrific day back in 2002 came flooding back, as if it was yesterday. The pain, the guilt, the sheer panic and desperation. She felt for Ben's family. She knew only too well their pain, for it was her own pain. Still to this day, it had never gone away. Over the coming days, the news was saturated with the missing boy's story but it was so hard for Pam and Craig to hear and watch it. The news coverage acted as a constant reminder that their boy had never been found. Oh, they absolutely hoped that little Ben would be found, so that the Ownbys did not have to endure the years of heartache that they had. But they just couldn't watch the news. Some four days after Ben went missing, Pam and Craig were doing errands, driving in their car. There was a terrible thunderstorm, and rain was pelting the car. All of a sudden, their cell phone rang. They answered it, and it was the local sheriff's department. They had something to tell them. He said, we're 95% sure that we found Sean, and he's alive. The Ombies had received the same call, and both families raced to the sheriff's office, desperate to see if it really was their child that had been found. The search for a kidnapped 13-year-old boy in Missouri has led police to a shocking discovery. Not only did they find Ben Ownby, who was snatched from his neighborhood on Monday, they've also recovered a boy who was kidnapped from another Missouri neighborhood four years ago. Sean Hornbeck disappeared in October 2002 when he was 11. He went for a bike ride and wasn't heard from again, until now, when he was found in the same home where Ben was being held. Amazingly, both Ben and Sean had been found. The acres were overwhelmed, ecstatic and beyond joyful. 
they could not wait to see their boy safe home at last. I remember walking in and he was sitting in a chair. His head was down. And he looked up and when he looked, I knew, I knew immediately that that was him. And that was just the most wonderful feeling that you could have. You know, and he immediately stood up. We must have hugged for 30 minutes without even letting each other go. You know, and just telling him I'm so glad he's home and that I loved him and just missed him so much. When County Prosecutor Don Cooksey, you know, the one who drained lakes and traversed mines to find Sean, well, when he heard the news, he was overwhelmed. I'm not going to lie to you. I sat down on the porch and cried like a baby. It was um, some of the best news I've ever heard. The boys had been found. Two families were whole once again. A success story amidst the many, many that are not. When the boys had been rescued, the man who had kept them hostage had been arrested at the same time and was held on a $1 million bail. But how had the police finally tracked him down? And what was different in the two abductions that meant there was more evidence with Benz to be able to pinpoint the culprit? And why, why would someone rob these two boys of their families and their innocence? Finally, we're going to go all the way back to the beginning. 37-year-old Michael Devlin was a loner. As a child, he'd been adopted into a large family, and accounts from friends and family state that he was a fairly outgoing person. Until 2002, when he developed diabetes and had to have two toes amputated. This huge transition in his life affected Devlin deeply, and he went from being outgoing to being moody and a loner, shutting himself off from friends and family and living a very solitary life. His main interaction with the outside world was his job as a manager in a pizzeria, a job he'd held for many years. In October 2002, Devlin decided he wanted to abduct a child, a boy. Now, despite much research, I have not been able to find any information on why Devlin waited until he was 33 to commence his depraved behaviour. Usually, people with deviant personalities and disorders present signs at a much younger age. But, from information I've read, by all accounts, Devlin showed no previous abnormal compunctions. Until 2002, after his diabetes diagnosis, when his whole demeanour and personality changed. Could such an event trigger someone who, for all intents and purpose, seemed to go from normal to then, in a short space of time, turn to such acts of debauchery? Hmm. Well, let's park that thought for a moment. I will be coming back to it at a later point. Devlin couldn't fight the dark, sinister need inside of him. And so, on October 6th, 2002, he drove some 60 miles southwest of his home in Kirkwood, Missouri. He was cruising around the rural areas in search of his victim. It needed to be a boy, a young boy, and he needed to be alone. Passing through the sleepy rural township of Richwoods, he spied a young boy on a bike, Sean. The area was fairly secluded, and being a Sunday, there weren't many other motorists on the road. This was his opportunity. 
He shunted the bike with his truck, knocking Sean to the ground. He got out of the truck and went around to him. Aiming a gun, he tied the boy's hands and forced him into the truck. He then threw his bike into the back of the vehicle and drove him to his apartment in Kirkwood. Sean was terrified. He had no idea what was happening to him or why this man had taken him. He kept pleading to be set free, but Devlin ignored his pleas. And the further that they travelled from his home, the more desperate Sean became. His pleas for freedom fell on deaf ears, and so he asked his captor, Why me? And his captor turned to him and told him, You were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. And from this point forward, Sean entered a living nightmare, held captive for four years. And it was four years later when Devlin decided to kidnap another young boy, Ben. Thirteen-year-old Ben had been stood at a bus stop when a white truck pulled up in front of him. A man got out and came around to him. As he approached Ben, the man suddenly lunged forward and grabbed him, throwing him into the back of his truck. But Ben wasn't going without a fight. He kicked, he screamed, he punched, he wailed. And his loud protestations caught the attention of a 15-year-old neighbour, Mitch Hulks, who turned to see Devlin's white truck peeling away with a tear-stained, terrified Ben in the passenger seat. Hulks ran to tell the Ombies what he'd seen, and the police were called immediately. Franklin County Sheriff Gary Tolkey immediately called the FBI and dispatched deputies to start a search. Mitch Hulks was questioned, and he gave a very detailed description of the vehicle. So descriptive, in fact, that the FBI didn't believe him initially. But Mitch was a truck fanatic and remembered details in minutiae about most trucks. And so he remembered everything about the truck that took Ben, even down to a rusty trim. But he couldn't remember the number plate. The FBI were frustrated. It would be like looking for a needle in a haystack. This was the Midwest, and white trucks were a dime a dozen. But because Hult's description had been so detailed, it wasn't long before they were narrowing their search down. In the meantime, the story of Ben's abduction was hitting every news channel in the show-me state. And it just happened to be playing on the TV of one certain pizzeria in Kirkwood, some 45 minutes away. The very pizzeria that Devlin worked at. The description of the truck was being described by the newscaster, and the owner of the pizzeria, Mike Prosperi, thought that the description was uncannily just like his manager's truck. One Michael Devlin. And what's more, Devlin had gone home sick on the very day Ben was taken. And in fact, Devlin had taken the next two days off work. Something that was very unusual for him. He never took time off. And so, Prosperi wasted no time in calling the police. So now the police and the FBI had a potential name and a place of work. And well, it wasn't long before FBI agent Lynn Willett rocked up to the pizzeria to speak with Devlin. Willett is known as the human lie detector and can detect someone lying by the slightest of obtuse body reactions. 
and when she began talking to Devlin, her senses were going off the Richter scale. No matter how much she looked straight at him during the questioning, he never once met her gaze. Devlin consented to having his truck searched, and whilst this was happening, Devlin sat in the back of the police car and spoke with Agent Willett. For all intents and purpose, he appeared calm and normal and was interacting in a natural manner. But then, Willett decided it was enough of the niceties, and she implemented the circular interviewing technique. This is the act of asking simple questions over and over. She was looking for deviations in the patterns of his behaviour, little telltale signs of lying. But almost immediately, Devlin kept talking about his godson, named Sean. He said Sean was staying with him and he needed to get back to him, so how much longer was this going to take? But every time Devlin said the name Sean, the vein on his neck would pulse. Willett knew instantly that Sean was not his godson. This Sean, whomever he was, was something Devlin was lying about. Could Sean be a pseudonym for Ben? Willett cast her mind over the scenarios that Devlin could be referring to. All she knew was that Devlin was lying, and Sean was something, someone, that he was lying about. She looked at the photo of Ben that she had in her hand, and suddenly the hairs on the back of her neck bristled as her brain connected the dots. Sean wasn't a euphemism for Ben. Sean was Sean Hornbeck, the boy who went missing four years before. The boy that happened to look an awful lot like Ben Ownby. Knowing what she now knew, Willett knew she needed to remain calm. She needed to get some kind of acquiescence from Devlin without antagonising him. For at this point, they really didn't have any solid evidence on him. Except for one thing. Their trump card. She told him that they had forensic evidence of casts of the tyre treads from the truck that left the scene of Ben's abduction. And these would be as cast iron as fingerprints. Devlin lowered his head and quietly said that Sean wasn't his godson. He was Sean Hornbeck and he admitted to having Ben also. Both were at his apartment. With Devlin in the car, they raced over to the apartment. As Willett opened the door, she immediately saw an older teenage boy sitting on the couch. She was confused. Ben was thirteen, and Sean must only be a young boy also at this time. But this boy looked so much older. She didn't recognise him at all, and wondered if Devlin had abducted more than just Ben and Sean. But before she had time to process this other boy in the apartment, Ben came flying out of a room, and seeing the door open, he ran full pelt at them, desperately running for his freedom. He slammed into Willet, and she grabbed him. He wriggled and tried to break free, desperate to get out of the apartment and reach his freedom. But Willet held on to him, and as she held him, she told him he was safe, that she was the FBI and Ben's little body relaxed and slumped. With Ben now in safety, Willett entered the apartment and approached the teenage boy on the couch. 
she still didn't know who he was, so she asked him his name. Sean Hornbeck. It was the moment that for four years Sean had prayed for, dreamed of, and almost lost hope of. He was going home to his parents. As Sean readjusted to life back with his parents, they did not dare probe him about what had happened in the missing four years. They understood his need to absorb and process, and they assured him that they were always there to listen to him, hear him, support him, and comfort him. But the one thing that they could never do was understand. And it was this, and Sean's terrible fear of rejection, that kept him from sharing his story with them. A trial was being planned for Devlin, and so Sean had to speak to the police about what he endured in the last four years. He found it so hard to open up, but it was easier to talk to the police than it was to his parents. Oh, he knew that they loved him no matter what, but he still wanted to be their little boy, untainted, perfect. He didn't want them to see him in any other light. Even the police encouraged him to talk to them, but he just couldn't. In October of 2007, nine months after the rescue, and despite the overwhelming evidence, the two witness testimonies from Ben and Sean, to the utter shock of the boys, their families and the police, Devlin pleaded not guilty to the charges laid against him. <sighs> Unbelievable. Sean realised he would have to take the stand and relive every moment of those nightmarish years. And he would have to do this in front of his parents. It wasn't how he wanted his parents to find out about what had happened to him. They had been so nurturing, caring and considerate with him, they'd respected his decision to not share with them. And now he needed to respect their feelings and let them know what happened before he took the stand. So, one night, Sean walked into his parents' bedroom, sat down on the bed, and asked if he could talk to them. He told them that in the first month after his abduction, it was pure agony. He was held in captivity in Devlin's apartment, bound and gagged to a futon whenever Devlin was at work, and duct tape was put over his mouth so he couldn't scream and call out for help. He was only released from the futon when Devlin came home from work. Whilst Sean has told his parents most of what he endured, details about his ordeal are so horrific and graphic that it has not been released by most media outlets. But it is suffice to say that Sean suffered terrible, agonising and debilitating abuse at the hands of Devlin. And this is how he lived, day in and day out. One month after his abduction, Devlin came home from work, untied Sean and forced him into his truck. He drove Sean out to a remote logging road, stopped the vehicle and dragged Sean out of the truck and proceeded to strangle him with the intent of killing him. But despite the horrors of the past month, Sean wasn't going to go down without a fight. He begged and he pleaded with Devlin not to kill him. And then he begged... I'll do whatever you want me to do. And something in this statement sparked a change in Devlin. He slowly released his grip on the boy, but with his fingers still poised around Sean's neck, he told him he wouldn't kill him. 
but the price of his life came with a deal. He was never allowed to contact anyone or speak to anyone. If he did, he would be killed. And so, on that Halloween night, whilst other kids Sean's age were out trick-and-treating, 11-year-old Sean Hornbeck agreed to become Sean Devlin. It was this deal that kept Sean tied to his tormentor for four years. A deal that Sean would come to regard as a deal with the devil. Not a day after his abduction went by that he didn't think that Devlin was going to kill him. Devlin would wave guns in his face and threaten to shoot him if he ever thought about leaving or revealing who he was to anyone or try to call for help. Sean spent the next four years living in this constant heightened state of terror and as the time passed, Devlin's control over him became stronger and stronger to the point that it became complete. He locked Sean in the apartment every day but because of his control over the boy he no longer had to bind and gag him. He knew Sean wouldn't attempt to escape or find help. But Sean would be left alone for eight to ten hours a day. He wasn't allowed to attend school, so he would just sit in the apartment by himself. He tried to sleep as much as possible. It was an escape for him. It made the time go by faster. There were times when he thought it was better off if he was dead, rather than to keep living through the abuse. There were times when he thought it was July, but it would be snowing outside. But it was the nights and weekends that Sean dreaded the most, when Devlin would be home. The only thing that kept him going during the years was his faith and thoughts of his family. He had more doubts in himself than he ever did in them. He knew they were never going to give up looking for him, and all he could do was hope and pray they'd find him in time. But this hope rapidly evaporated when in January 2017 Sean began to realise that he was perhaps getting too old for Devlin. His interest in Sean seemed to be wavering and this was confirmed when Devlin forced Sean into his truck to accompany him on a ride. A ride to abduct a new younger boy. Sean was terrified as he says. When you get a new car, what do you do with the old one? You usually get rid of it, right? Sean felt that his days were numbered. But Sean had lived with fear for four years. He was used to it. He knew what to expect from Devlin. But terrified little 13-year-old Ben did not. And so Sean did everything he could to protect Ben, to prevent him from being abused. But in the end, it was Devlin that held the control and the guns. All he could do was comfort Ben in the aftermath. However, during the interviews with the FBI, some, well, rather unusual information started to come to light about the four years of Sean's captivity. Information that the FBI found baffling. Seven months after being abducted, Devlin, so confident of his control over Sean, allowed him to make a friend a 13-year-old boy called Tony Douglas, whom lived in the apartment complex. In keeping with the deal, Sean told Tony and his family that Devlin was his dad and that his mum had been killed by a drunk driver. But 
this was all part of a script that Devlin had constructed for him. He also told them that he was homeschooled, and they had no reason not to believe him, and even considered Devlin to be a good father. They observed Devlin spoiling Sean, buying him bikes and video games. Sean even had access to the internet. Neighbours that came into contact with both Sean and Devlin considered them to be father and son, for that is how they presented their relationship. There was absolutely no indication that there was anything untoward. Tony and Sean became best friends, and Sean would often join the Douglas family on outings, and they even had sleepovers at the Douglas apartment. But not once, ever, did Sean so much as hint at his real identity. By now, you're probably in the same position as the FBI and the Douglases, and also myself when I first read this account. Why, when he was so close to this other family, did he not feel that he could confide in them? They would have protected him, and they would have helped him. In fact, anyone would have helped him if he'd come forward to them. I know I would. Wouldn't you? And this is the conundrum that baffled the police also. As the years went by, Sean was given more and more freedom, allowed to have friends, went to sleepovers, and it is even alleged he had a girlfriend. So why didn't he say something? There was even an occasion when he was sitting on the couch in the Douglas's apartment, when a missing person alert came on the TV. It was for Sean Hornbeck, who had been missing for several years at that point. The family looked at the image on the TV, and then at Sean, and the resemblance was so uncanny that they asked him outright if it was him. And Sean just laughed and said, Whatever. So why didn't Sean say something, especially to the Douglases, a family he was extremely close with? Surely he didn't like life with his captor. Things really aren't so simple. According to experts in child psychology, we need to understand how the experience of such traumatic events can alter a person's beliefs, the way they interpret the world and their environment, their safety, and how the parameters of these are inextricably woven into the fabric of their traumatic experience and their relationship with their abuser. Now, I'm not a psychologist, and nor do I want to make any assumptions on the detrimental psychological effects that Sean's ordeal can have on a person. All I can do is relay to you the information that I have unearthed during my research. Sean's isolation and abuse during his time with Devlin was so intense and terrifying, and at such a young age, that essentially his identity was completely torn apart. And sadly, over time, Sean began to see Devlin as his protector and surrogate parent, which is a pattern common to many abuse victims but most especially children. Control by terror, fear of death, and fear for the safety of family is at the heart of the coercion and control exerted by Devlin. Being a child, Sean was especially vulnerable to this coercion. Many people feel damaged by their experience, especially the younger they are at the time of that experience, and they wonder if they'll be accepted back into their old lives because they are now damaged. They feel they have no way out, even when presented with the opportunity. 
because the risks are too great if the opportunity doesn't materialise. It is total and complete control. Dr Terry Weaver, an Associate Professor of Psychology at St Louis University, said that a captor can confine a child with psychological barriers as much as physical ones. When a young child is taken from his family and isolated and perhaps threatened, and his loved ones are threatened if the victim doesn't comply, and those threats are backed up by violence, well, all that plays a tremendous role in silencing a child. Abductors know how to create a paralysing sense of fear, so even when the captor is not present, the child feels that they are omnipresent. Dr Jeffrey Lieberman, Chairman of the Psychiatry Department at Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons in New York, offers a different explanation. He thinks Sean may have fallen victim to Stockholm Syndrome, in which hostages or kidnapping victims sometimes befriend their captors. The name was coined by a criminologist involved in a 1973 case in Sweden in which bank robbery hostages became emotionally attached, even defensive, of the robbers. The most famous case of Stockholm Syndrome concerned newspaper heiress Patty Hurst, who, in the 1970s, helped her captors to rob banks. Lieberman called it a coping mechanism for people in life-threatening situations. The captor can also encourage this by being nice to the person, by giving them gifts, by making them think they will be treated well, and even by making them think this will be a pleasant and enjoyable and better experience than what they previously had. Dr Frank Ochberg, one of the psychiatrists who helped coin the term Stockholm Syndrome, said that the boy would have to have been badly traumatised at the onset and he would have had to have gone through a stage in which he was psychologically infantilised. This is people's infant needs for food and love which are met and so they begin to feel a primitive, primordial gratitude towards the person taking care of them. And, well, Sean seems to fall into all of these psychological suggestions. He was abducted at a young age, treated badly at the onset, isolated, kept in fear, inducing a paralysing sense of terror. But as time went by, his needs for food and love were met. He was given bikes and video games by Devlin so he meets the qualification for Stockholm Syndrome and psychological infantilization. And the fact is that we'll never actually know why Sean stayed with Devlin. Sean has never gone public about why he didn't try to leave. And from the last reporting I've seen on Sean, which was in 2019, all that he has revealed about his rationale is that he was terrorised, which I can very well believe. That poor boy was terrified and terrorised for four years. That's enough to make an adult submissive, let alone an 11-year-old boy. But there is one caveat to this story. Sean actually did try to reach out to his family whilst in captivity. As I have mentioned, the Acres had set up the Sean Hornbeck Foundation to help find missing children. Included in the website was an email tip line. And one day, in December 2005, the Acres received a message on the site, and it read, How long are you planning to look for your son? 
It was posted by one Sean Devlin. Sean later claimed that he was hoping the message would trigger some sort of response from his relatives. But by then, they'd received so many different comments from across the country that it never registered with them. And this is something that haunts Pam and Craig to this day. If only they'd responded. Well, sadly, I think it's about time we get back to that repugnant piece of work, Devlin. Not that I want to give him any more attention, but we do need to see whether he serves justice or not. Devlin was charged with 80 counts of sexual assault, kidnapping and attempted murder. But as we all know, that faecal matter of a human being opted to plead not guilty, thus forcing Sean and Ben to relive every moment of their ordeal in minute detail at trial. Like that fetid turd hadn't put those boys and their family through enough. <sighs> Earlier on, I asked you to park a thought process about Devlin, about how people who conduct deviant acts show signs of divergent behaviour early in their life, and the crime that they are eventually caught for is seldom their first crime. As I mentioned, Devlin's friends, family and co-workers never saw any aberrant behaviour in him at all throughout his life. So, was Sean's abduction a first-time offence? <sighs> I'm not so sure. And neither were the FBI. A task force was set up after Devlin's arrest to look into other missing children cases spanning back decades. And whilst quite a few were very similar in nature and MO to both Sean and Ben's abduction, there was absolutely no evidence to support a further conviction for Devlin, and neither would the deplorable excrement admit to any other kidnappings. But as the trial started, Devlin suddenly changed his plea to guilty. He only did this, though, after prosecutors had submitted evidence of videotapes of Devlin abusing Sean in the apartment. And Devlin knew that with these tapes now in the prosecution's hands, he was banged to rights. Because he now pleaded guilty, the trial was obviously bypassed and would go straight to sentencing, which was a huge weight off Sean's shoulders. But Pam and Craig wanted Devlin to know exactly what he had done to their family, what he'd put them through, and what he'd done to their boy. They were permitted to give a witness impact statement. I felt the deepest loneliness, the most anger, and the deepest loss and betrayal that any person could feel. He tore an 11-year-old child from his family, destroyed his innocence, and attempted to end his life. They pleaded with the judge for a lengthy sentence. Dunkeep Devlin did not respond to the statement or give any account of his own. And so, the family were left with no explanation as to why he committed these atrocious crimes against their son. And they may not have had the answers they were seeking, but they were one of the lucky families. They got their child back. However, the judge agreed with the Acres and sentenced Devlin to 72 life terms and an additional 170 years in prison. In short, that feculent devil will never know freedom again. Well, hallelujah and amen. Before we move on, 
I just want to revisit an earlier section of this episode. The capricious psychic whom prophesied Sean's demise to the Acres. I know I was rather harsh in my opinion of her earlier on, and you may have a different opinion of her. But I just wanted to state the facts in her reading of Sean's death. If you recall, she stated that Sean had been abducted by a tall Hispanic man with dreadlocks and the build of a basketball player. He was driving a blue sedan, and Sean was buried between two boulders in a forest some twenty miles southwest. The truth is, Devlin was an overweight white man in a white truck who lived sixty miles northeast of the Acres, and there were no boulders. He was held captive in hell with the devil. The only thing Sylvia got right was the name of the abductor, Michael. Hmm. When Sylvia was asked about her erroneous prediction, all she had to say was that she'd got her wires crossed. She'd picked up the wrong kid. That's it. <laughs> okay. Not sure how to come back from that one. I will note at this point that Sylvia wrote a book in 2008 about her predictions. In it, she prophesied that a severe pneumonia-like illness would sweep the globe in 2020. Did she just predict COVID? Huh? She also said that it would vanish suddenly and then reappear ten years later. Yeah, I'll be eagerly awaiting to see how that one pans out. So, what about Sean now? Well, he's doing rather well, actually. In fact, the lad is somewhat of a miracle, much like his rescue. He and his family received much therapy after he returned home, and slowly, over time, Sean was able to rebuild his life. He went back to school, and don't forget, Devlin had not enrolled him in school during his captivity, and even though he told people he was homeschooled, he never received an ounce of education during the four years. But amazingly, in just a year and a half, Sean had caught up to his peers, and he graduated with his class in 2017. Pam and Craig decided to fold the Sean Hornbeck Foundation in 2013, because they didn't have the time or resources to provide the best service possible. But their legacy lives on as the Sean Hornbeck Search and Rescue Team, which was part of the Foundation, has now gone on to become the Missouri Valley Search and Rescue Team. This is an organisation that is still going strong to this day, and they are still searching for missing children and adults in Missouri. And so that is Sean's story. An horrific ordeal and a heartbreaking journey for a family that could so easily have turned out differently. And this is not lost on any of the acres. They consider Sean's return to them, well, a miracle. There are still aspects of those years that Sean has not been able to share with his parents, or anyone. He's just not ready, and his family respect this and do not push him. I, for one, think Sean is a hero. He endured utter hell and torment at such a young age, but he kept his faith and love for his family as his beacon throughout his ordeal. 
and when he was finally returned to his family, he was able to rebuild his life. I have listened to many interviews with him, and I can tell you, he is one remarkable and upbeat young man. I'm not sure I would be so well-adjusted if I had endured what he did. Would you? Nobody knows the real story except for me, because it happened to me. My name is Sean Hornbeck, and I'm a survivor. If you like today's story, Sean's story, would you mind rating and reviewing at Apple iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts? You would be making one little podcaster who has been gargling salt water for the past few days because I lost my voice and I didn't want to miss a week in bringing a story to your lovely ears. Very happy. And I can tell you that salt water is the devil's urine, for sure. I just want to say a huge thank you to my college friend whom lent her son's voice to today's episode as young Sean. And whilst I'm in a thanking mood, oh yes, it's that time of the show where I'm probably asking if I can run rampant through your rose bushes in Russian rather than thanking listeners from their respective countries. So, yes, on to the obliteration. This week, I'd like to thank... Guatemala, hola e gracias, and Iceland, hallo og tak fyrir. Yikes, those rose bushes were a bit prickly. My deepest apologies, but so long as you know that I'm very grateful. And why don't you come join me on Facebook? Just look up Dark Side. I'd love to have you along for the ride. Or, if you'd like to have a private chat or provide some feedback, you can contact me at info at darksidepodcast.co.uk. So, with that said, please don't forget to stay safe, stay alert. Suze, over and out.